Blessed is our God, always now and ever, into the ages of ages. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, but let us mankind the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds to understand the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of the blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as will pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, Jesus our glory, together with that unoriginate Father, and that all holy, good, and life giving Spirit, now and ever, the ages of ages. Amen. So I wanted to say a couple things that are in general, but they're really related to chapter one. Um, I don't think we ever really talked about why we have the gospel. Did we talk about that at all? Talked about what? Why we have the gospels in the first place. No. Okay. So our theology tells us that God sends Jesus here to reveal the Father to us, to reveal God to us, and um, and to save us. That's that's the main reason Jesus comes. And we heard that when we heard that Joseph called the name of the child Jesus, meaning God saves. We talked about that a little bit. Um, so that's what Jesus did. And those that were around at that point, they got to see it for themselves. And when we get to the end of Matthew, you're going to see Jesus, um, the word in English is upbraid. We don't use the word upbraid a whole lot, but Jesus will upbraid his disciples for their lack of faith. That they should have believed those who um, saw the risen Christ, the women that saw him. But from the time of Jesus until now, we don't have access to that. We don't have access to... Um, seeing Jesus, hearing his direct teaching, getting to know him, seeing the miracles. Uh, we don't have that. What we do have, though, is the Gospels. So all the Gospels, all four of them, and but for our purposes, Matthew, the purpose of a Gospel is it's the same um, possibility offered to us that those that lived at the time of Jesus had. Now, only a few people that even lived at that time had the same opportunity. Because when Jesus was there in the area of Palestine and the Holy Land, doing his works, doing giving his teachings, only the people who were closest to him even had the opportunity to hear his preaching. In other words, even if you lived 2,000 years ago, the chance of you hearing Jesus are, are minimal. They're, they're statistically almost non-existent. Only a few people in the whole world at that time got to hear him. And only a few people really got to spend a lot of time with him to be able to do what the gospel does, which is really to describe in a very deliberate way who is Jesus. And specifically, who is he to us? So what the gospel is, it's uh, in some ways it's sort of a a time travel device in the sense that we don't get to be there with Jesus, hearing him, watching him. What do we get? We get the gospel. And you're going to see throughout the gospel that the people that were there 
not only the religious leaders and the political leaders, even his own disciples struggled with believing and putting their trust in Jesus as he was presenting himself and what he was talking about. So this idea of, well, they had it easy, they got to see it firsthand, no. And, and the gospel itself makes the point that even if you were there, you probably wouldn't have believed, even if you're among the 12. We'll see that in the last chapter of Matthew. But for us, we don't have that opportunity. We have this. We have the gospel. And our struggle is going to be the same. Do we choose to believe in, do we choose to put trust in, not just what this gospel says, but in the one that the gospel tells us about? So what the gospel does is it brings us into the same exact situation that everybody that knew Jesus and were around him and listening and learning from him, uh, it's the same decision. What are we going to do with this? Do we put our trust in not only the book, but in the one that the book is talking about or not? And it's no harder for us or no easier for us than it would be for the first, uh, for those that were around him immediately at that time. So that's one thing I wanted to say, but then specifically for us, um, when we read the, the gospel and, and the gospel of Matthew in this case, it really is up to us to decide what do we do about it? And I did make the point, I think, early on that um, the scripture is not a history book. It's not a theology book. Um, the scripture is an instruction on how to live. So if we take it, we go, yeah, I believe it. It's not what do I decide is true? What do I believe is true? If I take it, it's going to change how I live and what I do. not just going to be what I think or what my opinions are or what I say I think is true. All those are fine. They're important. But if it doesn't result in us changing what we do, then, as Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew, then we haven't believed. It's going to be the change in what we do that is the proof that we have decided to put our trust in not only the book, but in the one that the book talks about. Does that make sense? You see why it's significant for as we study the book what it means. Excellent. Any questions on any of that? I have a question. Yep. Do you, do you think it maybe was more difficult for those that were around him to trust and believe than it is for us? That's my personal opinion. Yes. Because we can decide, do we study the Bible? Do we not study the Bible? If I study it, will I do what it says? The, the, the being in the presence of Jesus, as, you, as the gospel is going to, to show us, it didn't allow for a middle-of-the-road approach. In fact, whenever there's a middle-of-the-road approach, Jesus is going to force those people around him to pick a side. So I'll give you an example. The, I, don't, I can't remember if it's Matthew or not. But the rich young man, we heard about this about a month or two ago on Sunday. Rich young man says, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And he says, you know, the commandments, do all the commandments. And the man says, yeah, I've done all that. Jesus says, okay, if you want to be perfect, meaning according to the original sense of the text, if you want to finish that process, get it to its end, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. So you see how he can't just take a middle-of-the-road approach. 
you can ignore him. You can uh, say, I'm not sure, and I'll let it go. Or you can dive in deep. But Jesus does not allow you, if you're around him, to be middle of the road. It, it's one or the other. You're for him, you're against him. And he'll say that, actually, too. He's not uh, with me, is for me, and, and vice versa. So, yeah, I think it was harder because you're either going to be somebody, because, because Jesus was a threat to everybody who was not really a pious follower of God. And he doesn't let you imagine that you are, but not do what a pious follower of God does. So he's going to be a threat to the religious leaders, which is why we're going to hear very lengthy, um, uh, not a diatribe, but a lengthy condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. All right, He's not going to let them just sort of, well, you have the title, you have the job, do the best you can. He's going to tell them, you either do what that law that you supposedly teach says, or you are a hypocrite. To the point where they'll be threatened so much that they'll, they'll be the ones that uh, conspire to kill him. He can't, in their mind, he cannot live. Um, I had never seen the play Jesus Christ Superstar until I think last year or before. I'd never seen it. But it was a television version. Some of you might have seen it on NBC. Uh, one thing that I really liked about it, I liked a lot of things about it, but one thing that I really liked was it really showed the willfulness of the Pharisees as being intolerant of Jesus. Like they have to get rid of him. They, 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 he, he is such a threat because, again, he's saying God is here for you directly. And do what the Pharisees say, but don't follow their example because they're hypocrites. So he, he's a threat to, um, to and then again, they're going to have to get rid of him. Herod the same way. Uh, Pilate in, in another way, you know, and the disciples in their own way. All the disciples um, are going to flee from him. They're all going to abandon him. Uh, one of them will betray him. So he's always going to show you're on one side or the other. We, we pretend we don't have to make that choice, but that's our own imagination. Followers of God, according to Matthew's gospel and all the gospels, you you either are in or you're out, right? Um, I had an inquirer to our, our church ask me about infant baptism because there's stories going around the internet about children dying uh, from being um, immersed in baptism. And I said to him, I said, you know, I, I can't verify the stories. I never heard of that happening, but perhaps it has happened. I said, but the reason why we're not going to change what we're doing is it is a death. To join the Christian church, to be a follower of Christ, is a death to the old life. You notice it's not a, a mild change. It's a death and it's a new life. And among most of our Orthodox Christians, you get a new name. You have a new identity. That's how stark it is. Um, so, yeah, I think to answer, go back to your question, I think the people around him, uh, face that decision, and we we are, at least to ourselves, allowed to pretend we can hop back and forth. But I don't think Jesus allowed that to the people around him. So they either were for him, or they're against him, or they were against him and they came back, like the disciples. They all first took him and fled, but then they came back. So, yeah. Other questions on any of that? 
Uh, before we go into chapter two, I wanted to highlight a verse we didn't really talk about too much. Um, go back to chapter one, verse 22. So this is the this is the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, chapter verse twenty. Son of David, do not afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, that was conceived of her into the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now verse twenty two. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet. Um, all this being taken place to fulfill. That's an idea that Matthew is going to, we talked about how Matthew really addresses a very broad audience, both Jew and Gentile. And what he's going to do for the Jew is to show that your scriptures um, pointed to Jesus and fulfilled and complete the Old Testament. And then to the Gentile, he's going to make them familiar with the Old Testament to bring them into that same sense of um, of jesus being the fulfillment of a tradition that wasn't their own in other words the gentiles weren't aware of the old testament tradition so he's going to introduce it to them and so by the time matthew's done whether you're a jew or a gentile you know enough about the old testament to see that jesus was the fulfillment and if you are familiar with it you'll see that based on what you know as your scriptures again jesus is the fulfillment so it's, it's a way of unifying this what was a separate community into one both jew and gentile who is the prophet that the lord was spoken by the lord through the prophet i think it's isaiah but let me make sure 23 yeah that's from uh, isaiah the virgin shall conceive and bear a son she calls him emmanuel that's from isaiah so that the prophet isaiah was way before christ yeah so that's hundreds, the, hundreds of years. That's how many years? Hundreds. Yeah. So that's the fulfillment of what he stated. Right. And why is he? Why was Isaiah so important to make that vision? Alan, you always ask the most perceptive questions. <laughs> the fact that he's called the prophet is not by accident. Um, we know that there are many prophets in the Old Testament. But the gospel specifically will say the prophet, and they don't say Isaiah for them. They quote Isaiah. They never just say the prophet and it not be Isaiah, which is why it's interesting. Some of the early church fathers considered Isaiah the fifth gospel, which is interesting because it's written hundreds of years before Jesus. But if you read Isaiah, and someday we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll We'll study Isaiah in Bible study because it's a fascinating book. And the fact that the New Testament says that he is the prophet, um, it shows you the importance. Um, Isaiah is a lot of things, but in brief, he's the one that really shows what you might call the arc of salvation, like the, 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 the path. So you have the merciful God. You have the people who he blesses with all his blessings but those blessings come by following his will that people never do and therefore 
God says, if you don't, you're going to suffer all these terrible things, including death. Now, Isaiah is preaching specifically to the people of Israel at the time in which they were under the threat of Babylon, this other nation to the east. That eventually, because Israel doesn't repent, they're going to be taken into captivity. And let me connect that to chapter one. If you remember, that long genealogy had three sort of markers. It was Abraham to David to the deportation of Babylon. Those are the three markers that, that Matthew puts out in his genealogy. That deportation of Babylon was the result of the people not heeding the warnings of the prophet Isaiah. So he warns them, follow God, be faithful, or if you don't, God is going to bring your enemies, and God will use your enemies as his tools. So think about that. Here's the people of Israel who are supposedly God's people put on the earth to be the salvation of the whole world. And they didn't really understand that, that the reason that was going to happen was because Jesus would come for the whole world, but through Israel. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Um, but Israel, the people of Israel, would not heed the prophet's warnings. And so what happens? They get taken into captivity. And then, and then the, the, God, the book of, of Isaiah, after all these warnings, then there are these beautiful chapters about God's love and mercy and healing, even in spite of the people's disobedience. And so all of that happens in, in Isaiah which is, again, another sign for us as Orthodox, we have the least problem uh, folding together the Old Testament with the New Testament. We read them both. When we read them, we have no conflict if we understand them in the way that the church has always understood them. Protestants, and to some extent the Catholic Church, really has this under a, 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 a conflict between what they ascribe as the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They see the God of the Old Testament as being angry and vengeful and wrathful. And then there's the nice Jesus. Well, again, if you read the scriptures, you don't get that sense. Either that God wasn't merciful in the Old Testament. You, don't, you get that sense if you read it. God was merciful throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's not like everything we want to do is fine. Actually, I was reading. You read your readings of the day. You, you read this already. Let me grab my book. The, uh, the reading from, I think it was yeah, Tuesdays and, and today's reading are the entire book of Jude from the New Testament. So let me read you part of today's. Uh, reading from the New Testament. This is verse 14. He's talking about evildoers. That's, that's the theme of the book of Jude. So he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, evil men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people. And he goes on. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And among those words, the apostles are the gospel. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who will cause divisions, not having the spirit. Uh, let's see. Oh, here it is. Sorry. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. He's talking about, again, evildoers in the church who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you. Again, he's talking to Christians. Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness the judgment of the great day. He has reserved, uh, oh, there it is. And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to those, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Here we go. Again, speaking of the evildoers, these are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming over their own chains, wandering stores for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In other words, in the New Testament, just like in the Old, for those that reject God and don't want to follow his will, they're going to suffer the result of that rebellion. That's a New Testament truth. It's an Old Testament truth. Nothing has changed in that respect. And that's why for Orthodox, we don't see a conflict between Old and New. It's, it's the same message. The only difference is the messenger and the fact that he preaches his message to everyone. And then he backs up his message of God's love and mercy by his own sacrificial death as a, as, a, as a statement of his love for us and as a, a, a 
accomplishing of, of salvation, conquering death. And it says, if you want to follow me, you do what I do. Take up your cross. Father. Yeah. Having been raised in a Protestant church and being a member of the Episcopal Church for 40 years before I officially joined the Episcopal or the, the Orthodox Church, um, I find it difficult for you to often say things about the Protestant churches because the Protestant church is huge. They don't, it's not every, every denomination has breakoffs and they all believe in different things. And so I just find it really difficult when you pretty much put them all in the same basket because uh, they aren't. All right, so that's, forgive all, me. that's all I'll say about yeah, that. Forgive me. I don't want to put them all in the same. Um, they're not all the same. There, there's a lot of variety, but there are many. There are, there are many, but it's not. Right. Yeah. There's not everybody. Um, and sadly, it's the, what I see is the growing number that are joining what they call non-denominational churches. Yes, yes. And that's a non-denominational church, they have no denomination, meaning it's up to them to decide what they teach. Exactly. That's, so, that's yeah. true. Forgive me Very for the overgeneralization, but among those churches, um, you have a growing divide between how they read the Old Testament and the New. That's right. And what you hear in them preaching in the New Testament isn't what the New Testament says. And that's that's mm -hmm. the problem. So if you are, are hearing of the Christian faith today, the chances that you're hearing it from a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or an Episcopalian, not that there are problems in those, there are problems in all of those, but there's still vestiges of this ancient faith. Even in these Protestant churches that have wonderful faith, I have many good friends that are wonderfully devout people. I'm not criticizing them, but their teaching is not the biblical teaching. When you have Christian mm -hmm. churches that are debating whether to put up a cross because it's such a negative symbol, that's a big Well, that's the way our whole, that's the way everything is in our world right now, anyway. If right. everybody, it's just crazy. Yeah, but thank you for pointing that out because I don't want to. I don't want to condemn those that aren't condemnable and 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 are okay. you know it's not everybody. It's just sadly it's the growing number. Yeah. And so when yeah. when they're out preaching, and I'm, I'm glad they're preaching Christianity, but I just wish it was a non-confusing message that they were giving because you preach that Jesus is loving and he just you know everything is fine doesn't matter what you do. Then you open your Bible. Now you're confused. That's like right. I, I read out, that was the New Testament I was reading out of. And so what do you do? Well, that doesn't fit. So I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to ignore that book. I'll read. And even in Matthew, if we read it according to what all of us have as our own preconceptions, because this is really the most important thing for us. All of us, even as all of us being Orthodox, still have enough of our own preconceptions about what the scripture says. That we have to, we're not here to condemn other people. We're here to say, where have we gone wrong? Where have we misunderstood these scriptures? And so that's that's what we're here to do. We're here to make sure that whatever um, misconceptions we have, we can't correct everyone else. I'm just saying in terms of the, the numbers of people hearing the gospel. And that includes us. We get gospel teachings 
from our friends, from other churches, things we read, books, whatever. And there's a lot of this good, but there's a lot of that just, it's not what the scripture teaches. And really what I want to bring up in saying all this was, we should always come to the scriptures 100% to take, 0% to, to put in. And we all have that struggle. I have it, you have, we all have the struggle of reading according to what we want to hear. It's really hard to just listen to what it's saying, but that's what we're going to do. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. All right, so let's get into Matthew chapter two, and let's tackle uh, verses one through eight. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been king of, born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written for the, by the prophet. And now that's still Isaiah, that prophet? Yep. Okay. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler. Who will shepherd my people, Israel? Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, <clears throat> determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. Okay. Um. One of the things I said to you in terms of what to look for in Matthew is the role of insiders versus outsiders. Um, in the Old Testament, God is going to work through a specific group of people to do his work of salvation. They're going to end up misinterpreting that to say that he came for them. And Matthew is going to help correct that misunderstanding. And yes, he came for them. Jesus himself will say, I came for the lost of the house of Israel. And then um, he will show that he's not there only for them. And that with them, he's there for the whole world. Remember that idea of, of Matthew addressing both Jew and Gentile, bring them into one reality. So who is it that's coming to look for the king of the Jews? To worship him. The wise, the wise men. Yeah, and who are they? Aren't they pagans? Yeah. So some translations say wise men. Then of yours say magi. <laughs> What's that? I've never heard the term bad guy. No, Magi, sorry. Oh, Magi. Yeah. 
Yeah, the the word actually in the Greek is is magi. How we translate it in English now. The root is the same root we get when we talk about magicians. That's where magicians come from. Uh, not like you know David Copperfield, but people who could use uh, supernatural means of either knowing something or doing something. So it says these wise men or magi from the east. In other words. They're coming from the outside. It's not the priests of Jerusalem. Um, and in fact, they come and who do they see? The king of the Jews. Yeah, Herod. Oh, Herod, I'm sorry. Okay, so Herod is the king of the Jews at this point. Mm -hmm. He's sort of, a, I think of him as a vassal king. He's he's the one that the Romans are keeping propping up. Um to be the one to sort of govern that they're going to help he's going to help rome govern that area they're an occupied land um so here these wise men come from the east they come to herod and herod who should be the one who would be there to protect the messiah of israel and you're going to see what he's going to do um in, in a few minutes you know the story but Go search diligently for the child when you found him. Bring it that I too may come and worship him. All right, we know he has no intention of worshiping him. All right, uh, we'll get to that in a few verses, though. By the way, I made a mistake. Uh, go back to verse six, where it says, "Written by the prophet." This is not actually from Isaiah. Well, I was wrong when I said every time it says the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this one actually is from Micah. So it's not every time, but, but often, I think usually it is to be Isaiah, and that's the problem. Father? Yeah. I have a weird sort of nitty-gritty question. It says that they come from the east, but then it says, for we have seen his star in the east. So if they're coming from the east, but they're seeing his star in the east, like I'm confused about the geography of that. So yeah, they're coming from the east. And where were they when they saw the star? Uh, oh, were they in Bethlehem already? No. I don't know. They were in the east still, weren't they? Yes. Okay. In other words, the first sign of his coming is not in Jerusalem and is not to the faithful of Israel. Okay. Now, we know how stars work. The people in, in, in that area could have seen the star. It wasn't visible only in the east. Stars aren't visible just in one place. But whatever the star was, they saw it there, meaning it was revealed to those people. I'm not saying it wasn't revealed to Israel. But it wasn't only to Jerusalem. So yes, they're coming from the outside. And the revelation, meaning from God, was given to the outside. So Matthew is going to continually, in ways that are subtle sometimes, but uh, sometimes these things, we don't catch it because we're familiar. That's one of the dangers of, of knowing the scriptures um, and knowing them wrong, as we all do to a degree. Um, the danger of familiarity says, well, okay, yeah, well, I, I know they're from the East, Big Deal. I've heard that since I was a kid. But if you read it as, as a story is written and try not to bring it into it, that's remarkable. That here, after all of the Old Testament, where God worked almost exclusively through the people of Israel, not always, even like I mentioned Isaiah's prophecy, he said, if you don't follow me, I will use Babylon as my scepter, as my uh, punishing law. 
which again, it's not that it's completely different old to new, but the misconception that the people of Israel, we're, we're God's chosen people as if that meant that they were better than everyone else. Here, and we're gonna see it over and over again in, in Matthew's gospel, the outsiders are the ones that get it and no one else does at this point anyway. The Orthodox study Bible says, the wise men or magi who came from the east, that is outside of Israel, perhaps from Persia, are the scholars of their time. Yeah. And, and uh, there are people that have, have sort of uh, made educated guesses what religion were they. Some people say they were Zoroastrians, which is a religion that's still around. It's not very popular anymore. But um, one of the things that Zoroastrians did, as you can tell in the name, is they, they, were, they looked at the stars. Um, just like people who follow the horoscopes and all that, um, they look to the stars for um, direction as revelation. In other words, you study the stars because there's meaning. It's not just beauty, but there are patterns, there's meaning. I was shocked um, when I, I took a group to Guatemala years ago for spring break. They were doing their volunteer at the orphanage there. And the nuns took us into the new church they had built. And right in the center of the church on the floor, in mosaic, was the horoscope. The symbols, you know, the whole circle with all the symbols, right? And I looked at it and I was like, then the abbess saw me with her eyes wide open. She says, what's the matter, Father? <laughs> and I said, what's with that? Because I've been taught my whole life, like, horoscope is, you know, it's evil, it's, it's the devil. She said, and I never knew any of this, that there are four main horoscopes throughout the world. And the one that we all know of as the, the normal one, I think is the Persian one. So probably these magi were people who used the horoscope. They look at the stars and how the stars move at different times of the year and different years. There was an Aztec one, uh, there was a Mayan one, and there's one more, I can't remember. All of them, not exactly the same, but remarkably similar. And I said, why is it here? She said, this is actually an ancient practice that churches did, not all that often, but it was, it was there. And the horoscope was on the floor directly under the Pantocrator icon in the dome. So you're standing right next to this horoscope on the floor. You look up, you see Jesus. And their interpretation was that because of the similarities of these things, it's not uh, necessarily demonic power. And it's not that those things tell your future. But there are things that we can learn. In fact, they would say to us, like, when you're dating somebody, it's not a bad thing. Not that you're going to go by this exclusively, but compare your horoscopes because there is remarkable patterns that are like identifiable that people in certain born under certain symbols tend not all the time but tend to have certain qualities and in their experience people that you know marry a compatible person on a sign it just makes life a little bit easier they weren't saying go buy it in a sense of you, you that's the, your beginning and end what they're saying was though is that god has put into the world patterns of revelation that come from the stars the difference for us christians is 
all that happens literally under the gaze of Christ. That under his will, under his power, that these things, whatever amount that there's influence there, it all happens under him. So I was fascinated when I, when I saw that there. But yeah, they studied the stars. They studied the stars for meaning. And enough meaning that they were able to, to look at these stars and say a king was born. I mean, there's people in Israel not knowing what's going on, but these wise men from the east look at the stars, they go, oh, there's a new king. Let's go and worship him. Not only a king that you would just, you know, honor, but they go to worship him. There's some, whatever they got in their message, it was enough to say, here is a king and he's one to be worshipped. Which is, again, it's remarkable. And they're not people of Israel. Um, there is a quote from the Old Testament that was quoted by a, a writer of the, of the Christian church. He was not a saint, but uh, a very prolific writer. He says, the patriarch Jacob had already anticipated this very time precisely when he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Matthew brought these same prophetic testimonies forward in order to show from them that everything came about according to the words of the prophets. On the one hand, he showed that Christ would come from Bethlehem, as has been said by the prophet. And there he's uh, quoting that same verse in uh, verse 6. On the other hand, he demonstrated that this thing of Jacob prefigured that which was to occur in the days of Herod. The fact that Herod was king, and by the way, this is only 40 some odd years before the end of any Jewish reign over that land. So literally, that prophecy that the scepter would not depart from Judah until it comes to whom it belongs, it belongs to Christ. Christ is the archetypal king. And as soon as he came to him there, then the line of kings ended. So again, Matthew's going to show that for those careful to read the Old Testament, there should be no surprises that the one that fulfilled these prophecies was the promised Messiah. Any questions on that section? Let's quickly tackle a few more verses. Let's do 9 through 12. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they saw, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Okay. So... 
Herod tells them, go find the child. When you find him, come and tell me. I want to worship him. We know that's not uh, his real intention. We'll see that in a few verses. Um, so what? how does this star, what does the star do? It led them from the east. They saw it in the east and led them to Jerusalem. Then Herod says, okay, go find him. And by the way, the Bethlehem is just a few miles from Jerusalem. This is not a great journey. You know, um, it's like downtown to east kind of a thing, you know, very close. Um, but what does the star do? How do they know where to go? The star guides them or directs them. Yeah. And then it, it came to rest. It stops. And there's all kind of theories about what this Christmas star was. Was it a conjunction of planets? All kind of things. Every every December, if you can go, once the, our uh, planetariums open up again, they always have a display on the, the Christmas star and different theories about it. Um, but the point is that that star that led them from the east takes them to Bethlehem and then stops. And somehow, how they followed it, they knew um, where to go because the star guided them. And then on that same point of being guided, Verse 12 into the section, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So who who warned them in a dream? We already heard some warnings in a dream earlier in chapter one. It's God or God's messengers. So here's God continually now revealing himself in some way, either through himself or through the angels, um, to these outsiders, who, again, according to the wrong understanding of the, the Jews that time, were unclean, uh, they were not God's people, but here they're receiving none of the revelations of the star, now they're getting warned in a dream. And so after worshiping him, they, they depart because of that warning. So again, God is working with, with outsiders. Why did they always warn in dreams? Um, it, it, there's no clear answer. We, it never says this is why. Um, my own personal theory is that a dream is one of the ways that God can speak, but that you still have the freedom to take it or leave it. If God comes to us when we're awake, there's no uh, there's no guesswork. Yeah. Right? You're awake. You see an angel. <laughs> you know it's. But in a dream, you can decide what to do with it. And by the way, this is where we've taken this completely in a wrong way. The reason why you can take it or leave it is we have dreams. Some people dream every night and remember it. Some people don't remember their dreams. But it's sort of left to us what to do with it. And because of that, some people put too much emphasis in their dreams. And so every dream has to have a meaning. It has to have a message. What is God trying to tell me? When we know that that's rare in dreams, mostly our dreams are just, it's our unconscious self kind of working through stuff that our conscious self isn't ready to deal with when we're awake. So it's sort of a, it's a, you get, you get to do with this as you as you choose 
That's my personal theory on why dreams. We don't really know why God chose to do that. Looking ahead well, at the next couple of session, sections, it does say that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother right. and go to Egypt. And then it says later, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Yep. Yeah. So it was time to go back. Yeah, so the angel, the angels are by the, their title, angelos, messenger. We talk about that a lot. We were studying Revelation. The angel is the messenger. It's the one who brings God's message to people, and often in dreams, not always, but often in dreams. Yeah, so that 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 angel appearing to Joseph already happened a couple of times back in chapter one, and then going into chapter two. It happens. It's not just once. Um, the story that we're going to see unfold, and again, it's up to us to accept it or not. God is directing what's happening. This is this is God's intervention in the world, and um, it's not to just this one people who thought that God is the only one, or that only to these people will God communicate. So yes, He does to certain ones, Joseph in this case, but also to to these wise men from the east. A um, couple things to note. Where do they find the child? And this is where you're never going to look at your nativity sets the same again. So sorry to spoil the scene for you, but we have to correct our misconceptions. Verse 11, where do they find the child? In, in a home yeah. Mary and Joseph are living in. So then I beg the question, why did they tweak the story to just make it look complete or what? What do you mean tweak the story? Well, that um, the Magi went to where the child was born. You know, the nativity scene. Well, that's our preconception because we have our nativity sets. And there's the shepherds and the angels and the wise men. That's what I mean by it made it complete. And the wise men. Yeah, but the scripture is going to correct that and say, first of all, they're not going to a manger. They're going to a house. Right. Now, what a lot of biblical scholars will tell you is that they may have seen the star. Well, it tells us. Go back. Let me go back and find it. Um. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east have come to worship. In other words, that the star appeared when Jesus was born. And when that happened, they were still in the east. So they so saw the star. What's that? There's a lag time between when he was born and when they get there. He's exactly. born in a manger. Yeah. Yep. But then they find a better spot, right? Yeah. Yeah, Joseph and Mary didn't stay in that manger very long. We don't know how long, but by the time the wise men come, we don't know if it's his days, months, is it is it a year, is it longer? But wherever it is, now they're in a house. All right. Um, and so again, that 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 the nativity scene isn't exactly the way the scripture talks about it. Well, and when Herod kills the children, that's all two years and younger, right? So it could be anywhere in that time span. Yeah. 
And that's where, again, some scholars that you probably would try to interpret that perhaps by the time Herod sees the wise men, and when he says, kill all the male children two years or younger, some people interpret it and say that it took them two years from the time they saw the star to talk to Herod. And therefore, it's all the male children two years and, and younger that Herod's going to kill. So that's where a lot of people say that this happens when Jesus is now two years old. We don't know that exactly, but you're piecing together different pieces of information. We just know that it was it was after the birth. How long, we don't really know. We can interpret it was two years from now. Um, so they see the child with Mary, his mother, fall down and worship him. O only God gets worshiped. Right? So there's some sense, even from these outsiders, that this is a divine appearance. They open their treasures, they give them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let me read you a little a description of those. How did how did they know at that time that he was the son of God to worship him? So they didn't know he was the son of God because they don't say that. They, they know that he is some sort of, well, they know that he's the king, which is interesting because the only time you see a king born is when a king or queen have a son. So to tell Herod, where is the king of the Jews that's been born, is basically saying to Herod, you're no longer the king. <laughs> or at least at some point. Mm -hmm. And the one born of, of whoever was born is not your son. So it really is a, 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 a sort of a threatening thing to say, there is a king born. And it's not from your line. So it really brings Herod's uh, kingship into question. And, and not to get too far into this, but Herod is an interesting figure. He was not really truly a Jew. Uh, he was uh, from the land of, of Idumea, and there's a lot of complication about that. But um, he's not the pure Jew we would imagine a king of the Jews to be, um, which again sort of makes him suspect in his in his kingship um but yeah whatever however it was it was the star somehow and the and reading there through their their science or religion and science and religion in the ancient world is not two different sides we think of it as modern people we put science on one side and, and religion the other they saw it as all one thing that god was revealing himself through the created world so whatever they saw in the revelation from the stars it was enough to say that this one born was a king and worthy of worship. Because they bow down and worship him. Here's what uh, Gregory the Great says about the gifts. Um, there is something to be understood about the gold, incense, and myrrh. Solomon testifies that gold symbolizes wisdom when he says a pleasing treasure lies in the mouth of the wise. 
So he's talking about gold as a symbol of wisdom. The psalmist bears witness to that incense which prayer offers to God when he says, let my prayer ascend and arise in your sight as incense. We pray that during Vespers, during your sanctified liturgy, we'll hear it also. The myrrh indicates the mortification of our bodies, of which the Holy Church speaks of its workmen who strive unto death on behalf of God. So we too offer gold to Norakin if we shine in his sight with the brightness of wisdom. We offer him incense if we enkindle on the altar of our hearts the thoughts of our human minds by our holy pursuit of prayer. We offer him myrrh if we mortify the vice of our bodies by our self-denial. So myrrh is, is that ointment that you put on the body to uh, help slow down uh, the decomposition. It's, it's the, the ointment that you, that you anoint the dead with. Which is interesting because on the one hand, you'd say, well, it's showing that this one born is going to die. It's a terrible thing to give a child. Uh, imagine going to visit a friend and their child and you bring them um, embalming fluid. You know, it's not a very uplifting gift. Um, but that's what myrrh is. Myrrh is for the dead. Now, Gregory's going to associate that with not only the death of Christ, but our own death, following our own death to ourselves and our, and our selfishness in mortifying the vice of body. We're about to go into Lent, which is about trying to kill the sin in us, to mortify ourselves and our desires and our, our love of luxury and all the rest in order to let the eternal part of us uh, breathe and live. So they're interesting gifts. We know, of course, by the icon of the nativity, Jesus in the, in the icon is wrapped not in swaddling clothes of a child, but in the burial shroud. You'll see him wrapped in a mummy, showing that this one that was born was born to die, and born for our salvation by his death. Do people, do people um, scholars or whatever, understand that? I mean, we see that because we know what it looks like, but do um, others view that same thing? So we know what the gifts were, and you can interpret them different ways. Gold, you know, St. Gregory interprets it as wisdom, that the one who is born is a, will be a wise teacher. Others associate that with the fact that he's a king. Um there are those that, that would say our theology of Jesus is that he's going to fulfill three types of people in the Old Testament. Uh, three types of very important people in the Old Testament are prophets who are there to speak God's truth and are therefore usually killed because people want to hear God's truth. Uh, prophets, priests who are there to lead people to God and bring God to the people. And kings, people who rule the people. And Jesus is going to fulfill for us, and we'll see it as Matthew goes through, and this is one of those times we can see it that way. Jesus is going to be the, the ultimate priest, prophet, and king. And there are those that would say in the gifts of the Magi, the gold given to a king, kings receive tributes from their people. So gold uh, frankincense is what a priest offers as a prayer to God. And then the myrrh, a burial, 
that the prophets would preach God's word and, and usually killed because of it. So it's there are those that would interpret that way, but again, it doesn't say it specifically. So we can you can interpolate it. It can help uh, support that. But you're going to see throughout the gospel um, that Jesus is going to be uh, portrayed as all those three. And the first is already here. Look at the wise men say, where, who, where is he who was born king of the Jews? So we're already seeing him as a king already in the very beginning of chapter two. And think about it other way. Um, chapter one is Jesus who was the born at the end of all that genealogy as the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is sort of the ideal king of the Old Testament. He's the first sort of official king. There was another king before that didn't do so well, Saul. But David sort of redeems the, the, the kingship by, um, and even, even it wasn't, we you know, a perfect king. But um, so you're going to see that it's not just Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament in general, but that he's going to be the fulfillment of all of the priests, prophets, and kings of, of the Old Testament not just for the people of Israel, but for everybody. And we'll see how that plays out throughout the book. Well, thank you for your patience early on and sticking a little bit late here. Any uh, concluding thoughts or questions? All right. Well, God willing, we'll be again in person and remote next week. So if you want to come, hopefully that'll be the case. Thank you, Father. Thank you. God bless everybody. Thank you, Father. All right.